and welcome to the Critical Voter Podcast. My name is Jonathan Haber, and in case you're wondering what happened to the usual intro music to the show, this week's opening and closing number are being provided by today's guest, someone who played a major role in the development of everything you've been listening to over the last couple months, in fact, the first student for this material, my son Eli. As some of you know, Critical Voter began as a set of critical thinking lessons I was developing with students like Eli, who is now in eighth grade in mind. I was able to discern that his schooling, and that of my younger son Ben, was missing something, despite the fact that they were receiving excellent public school educations, it was not entirely clear what that something was. And so on hikes, long drives, and drop-offs to rock climbing class, we explored issues like the brain and bias, a hot topic after I finished reading Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, Logos, Pathos, and Ethos, Eli's first introduction to Aristotle, Argumentation and Rhetoric, where he, like many kids, enjoyed fallacies and figures of speech that lend themselves to wacky examples delivered with fake accents. Through these discussions, I realized that kids, even Ben, who's in the fourth grade, actually enjoy learning this stuff, especially since it provides insight into what other people are saying, doing, and even thinking. Given most people's, especially young people's, aversion to being manipulated, a set of tools that can help you avoid getting jerked around while also showing you how to persuade others can seem like a set of superpowers, which, come to think of it, they actually are. But I also learned what didn't work with regard to teaching critical thinking skills, not just to younger students, but to anyone. Most notably, learning critical thinking as an abstract set of concepts is probably going to fail. Not because subjects like argumentation and fallacies aren't interesting to read about and study on their own, but because there's a hugely important skill component to critical thinking, which makes it different than other subjects. For instance, you can learn this year's body of knowledge for your science, math, or history class, but critical thinking consists of a set of tools you use to put that body of knowledge to work. And if you don't use these skills and use them immediately and in context, you're probably going to lose them. A lot of people use the metaphor of swimming as a parallel to critical thinking, since both are skills you can't master by just reading about them. They need to be put into action. But given that critical thinking is a head activity, I think a better analogy is mastery of a software program which requires a combination of knowledge and applied skills learned through practical application. To give you an example of what I'm talking about, earlier in the summer I put several weeks into studying a number of computer and software skills that I've been wanting to learn for a while. And the skills I put to use immediately to create critical voter, such as how to self-host a blog site, record and edit digital audio, and create and distribute a podcast, are now second nature. But the skills I didn't end up using after learning them, such as Adobe Dreamweaver, are pretty much lost. Getting back to critical thinking, it was clear that I not only needed to teach each concept in context, but that this context needed to immediately provide opportunities to put a practical skill to use. So the choice of the U.S. election as our case study was not just about finding one of the increasingly rare cultural experiences all of us share. It was also about finding something that would provide daily examples that could be put to use when talking about persuasive rhetoric, logic, bias, and the like. So Eli's going to join us in a few minutes to talk about his experience contributing to this project and what he's learned from it. But to set the stage, I'd like to present one more example of how we can apply the skills you've been learning to dealing with a practical political problem. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at various campaign artifacts in light of one or more critical thinking tool including debates, which we analyze using Aristotle's modes of persuasion and the candidate's use of rhetorical devices, TV ads, which we organize into syllogisms and Toulmin diagrams for argument analysis, and other traditional campaign communication vehicles such as convention speeches and interviews. Between the podcast and the blog, we've covered a great deal of ground with one exception, 
analysis of specific political issues. Part of this is because much of the rhetoric we've discussed and dissected was being generated by the candidates, especially during the debates, specifically to avoid direct discussion of said issues. But I've also shied away from diving into controversial subjects like war and peace or social issues since, as I hope you've seen to date, this podcast is designed to use the election to teach critical thinking skills, not use critical thinking to sort out who was right and who was wrong about any particular issue. But then something arrived in the mail that provided the perfect context to use specific issues to illustrate many of our critical thinking tools. The Massachusetts Voter Information Guide. For in addition to letting us know who was on the ballot, this booklet also provides background information on three initiatives voters will be casting ballots on this year. And these resources include pro and con arguments written by advocacy organizations for and against each question. So to illustrate what you should now be able to do as critical thinkers, I'd like to take a look at arguments for and against question three, proposal to legalize medical use of marijuana in Massachusetts. In addition to being a subject that's had national exposure, as opposed to question one, which deals with the somewhat more obscure topic of who gets to share automobile diagnostic and repair information, medical marijuana is also one of the 43 issues covered on the website Procon.org, whose president was our guest last week. So if this analysis ends up requiring deeper background knowledge than what appears in the ballot or the voter information booklet, you know where to go. In favor of legalizing the medical use of marijuana, Linda Brantley, president of the New England Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, starts off by telling us, quote, A yes vote will ease the suffering of thousands of people with cancer, Parkinson's disease, Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis, HIV, AIDS, glaucoma, and other debilitating conditions. Scientific research has proven that marijuana can be useful for many clinical applications, including pain relief, nausea, and seizures. Okay, so the opening sentence of this argument consists of a pathos or emotional appeal, claiming that a yes vote is really a vote in favor of easing suffering, something that we all desire for ourselves, loved ones, and strangers, especially those afflicted with one of the life-threatening and pain-inducing diseases Ms. Brandley includes in her list. The second sentence makes a logos-based claim that marijuana can help ease the suffering she just described. And thus, the two sentences in this opening paragraph form a kind of an enthymeme, a syllogism with an unstated premise, which we introduced back in episode 6, where we looked at how syllogisms can help us dissect a political ad. In this case, Brantley's argument can be translated to Premise 1. Sympathetic people should vote yes on ballot questions that help diminish the suffering of those with debilitating and painful illnesses. Premise two. Legalizing medical use of marijuana will diminish the suffering of people with debilitating and painful illnesses. Conclusion, therefore, sympathetic people should vote yes on the ballot question legalizing medical use of marijuana. As we discussed previously, unless someone's argument clearly breaks the rules of logic, it is in our interest to turn an argument presented in plain language into a valid syllogism, that is, a syllogism that doesn't break the rules of logic, which gives us the chance to test whether the premises are sound, that is, whether they are true and make sense in the real world. In this case, the first premise, sympathetic people should vote yes on ballot questions that help diminish the suffering of those with debilitating and painful illnesses, would be difficult to argue without coming off as uncaring. But the second premise, legalizing medical use of marijuana will diminish the suffering of people with debilitating and painful illnesses, is far more open to challenge. For example, this paragraph includes a long list of ailments for which medical marijuana is supposed to provide relief. And given the availability of online information and our own information literacy skills, it should be straightforward to find out if there's consensus within the treatment communities of each of these illnesses regarding the value of marijuana as pain relief. And such a challenge should not simply answer the yes or no question of whether smoking marijuana diminishes pain, 
but whether there are other pain relief alternatives for people suffering from those illnesses that don't come with the risks and baggage associated with a drug that's been long connected to addiction and crime. The author's own statements actually opens up this premise to challenge in claims which say, quote, scientific research has proven that marijuana can be useful for many clinical applications, which would lead you to ask the question such as, what research and which clinical applications? And is the research he is referring to incontrovertible or highly controversial? And again, this scientific research needs to answer the question of not just whether smoking marijuana diminishes pain, but whether or not it is so superior to alternatives that it is worth the risk associated with legalizing medical marijuana use. In that sentence I just mentioned, the writer may also be trying to take advantage of the halo effects surrounding the word scientific, which would tie a political claim to the notion of impartiality and rigor we associate it with the brand of science. In this case, science is being deployed as a term with a specific positive connotation. As we get into the second paragraph of her argument, one which tries to minimize the risks behind this proposal, she makes use of other strategic terminology with positive or negative connotations. Quote, Provisions of the proposed law requiring strict regulation by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, written physician approval, a limited number of nonprofit treatment centers, and criminal penalties for fraud will help ensure only appropriate medical use of marijuana. Here we're witnessing a form of the rhetorical device procatalepsis, the strategy of mentioning and countering likely objections in your own terms. And in this case, terminology is skillfully deployed to make the risks of the proposal seem minimal. After all, use of medical marijuana will not just be subject to government regulation, which seems like a fairly weak guarantee, but to strict regulation, something that sounds more concrete and ironclad. Similarly, treatment centers will be limited, implying narrow scope, and nonprofit, a word you don't associate with drug dealers. And there will not be just penalties, but criminal penalties, which will help ensure only appropriate use of marijuana. The final paragraph tries to create a bandwagon effect, which asks you to get on board with other people you identify with, combined with another attempt to blunt criticism of the risk behind the proposal. Quote, This proposal has been endorsed by many patients, their families, medical professionals, and law enforcement officials who believe that a smart, science-based approach can help suffering patients without encouraging inappropriate drug use. In fact, allowing the medical use of marijuana will lessen the need for dangerous narcotics like morphine and oxycontin. In this case, patients and families are groups you want to sympathize with, presuming you care about easing the suffering of others, and medical professionals and law enforcement officials are authorities we want to see supporting any controversial proposal since their support gives the impression that the issue may not be so risky after all. But here it is the arguer who is taking a risk, since she never specifies what she means by the word many. For example, a hundred law enforcement officials supporting this question might seem like a large number, or many of them. But if 9,900 other law enforcement officials oppose the bill, that many just represents 1%. And the reason I say her claim is risky is that, if it turns out many is really not so many, it damages not just the credibility of this point, but the credibility of an arguer who could be trying to inflate claims regarding levels of support among key communities. The last sentence regarding marijuana as a safer substitute for dangerous drugs like OxyContin is also a mixed bag, since it reminds people of the dangers and risks involved with public availability of an addictive pain-killing drug. So while this point might have been true with regard to marijuana being a safer medical alternative to drugs like morphine and OxyContin, rhetorically her point triggers questions regarding other safety concerns, such as addiction and crime, which are likely to be on the minds of people voting on this issue. Moving on to the argument against question three, at first I was inclined to like this argument less since its writer, Dr. Jay Broadhurst of the group Vote No on question three, uses less than temperate language, which seems to be appealing to one of what I call the bad emotions, in this case, fear. He starts, quote, 
We all have compassion for those in pain, but the loopholes for corruption and exploitation are enormous. If enacted, this law would allow virtually anyone could grow pot in their backyard and carry a 60-day supply, anyone age 21 and over to operate a pot shop in your neighborhood and sell marijuana for any quote-unquote medical reason, not just for the seriously ill. So after getting out the bare-bones ethos appeal, quote, we all have compassion for those in pain, the arguer immediately jumps into worst-case scenarios of the law being exploited to allow pot gardens and pot shops in your neighborhood, demonstrating how loopholes in the law will bring corruption and, by implication, crime to your backyard. The term pot shops makes another appearance, implying the author's understanding of the negative connotation of this term versus Brantley's nonprofit treatment centers. In this case, the term is used as part of two primarily logos-based claims of fact, which state, quote, In Colorado, for example, less than 3% of patients suffer from cancer and HIV, and, quote, We do not need 35 pot shops to serve the less than 1% truly in need of medical marijuana in Massachusetts. The first claim is somewhat sloppily worded, but using the principle of charity, I think it's safe to take it as meaning that a large majority of medical marijuana users in Colorado, a state which passed a medical marijuana law, do not need it for pain relief from major illness. The second claim also provides a statistic that the number of people in Massachusetts who could potentially benefit from medical marijuana is very small, less than 1%. All these claims can and should be checked against the actual wording of the resolution, which can clarify whether or not it really allows anyone to grow grass in their yard or open a pot shop in your hood, and whether the statistics related to Colorado and Massachusetts are accurate. If they turn out to be misleading, either because they are false or represent highly unlikely worst-case scenarios, then again, this does not just rebound to the credibility of the point, but the credibility of the arguer. Without ignoring the need to do further research, the con argument actually won me over at the very end with this statement. Quote, There's already a marijuana pill available for prescription, Marinol. Other marijuana medication will be available in pharmacies soon. Medical marijuana needs tighter restriction and physician oversights. Let's develop medications properly and find a better path for seriously ill patients who should not be arrested. Well, Dr. Broadhurst has mashed together a number of points, which makes his closing argument somewhat confusing. Fundamentally, he's making the best deliberative, that is, future-oriented argument in either the pro or con statements, saying, in effect, that we have, or will soon have, a safe alternative that will allow seriously ill patients to benefit from the medical effects of marijuana as pain relief medication, with none of the downsides of allowing widespread growing of what is now an illegal drug. I'll have to leave the arguments here, but not before highlighting one last point regarding how political organizations tend to name themselves these days. For instance, the group supporting the medical marijuana bill, whose full name is the New England Coalition for Cancer Survivorship Committee for Compassionate Medicine, follows the time-tested pathway of packing as many pathos and ethos-based words that will fit into an organizational title, in this case, coalition, cancer survivors, compassionate medicine, to the point of putting the ability to create a pronounceable acronym at severe risk. Question one, the one I mentioned on automobile repair information, is backed by the Massachusetts Right to Repair Committee and opposed by the Citizens Committee for Safe and Fair Repair. And I'll leave it up to you to decide which one is a front for independent repair shops versus the auto dealers. In contrast, the group opposing medical marijuana I've just been quoting from is simply called Vote No on Question 3, a name which leverages another effective rhetorical technique, simplicity. For if we assume most people will neither read the bill or arguments in the voter information guide, nor go through the type of analysis we've just been discussing, then the first time such people encounter this issue will be in the voting booth. And with just a few seconds to decide what to do, a lingering instruction to vote no on three they saw on a road sign or bumper sticker may be all they need to take the safe route and vote to leave current laws unchanged. 
I'll admit that when I first saw pro and con arguments on the Mass Voter Information Guide several years ago, I wonder why they were there. After all, the text of the legislation should be the primary source of information people use to make a decision. And if someone needs to confirm additional facts, they could do so through their own independent research. But in the context of the critical thinking subjects we've been studying, the inclusion of these arguments makes perfect sense. For most people will not read the bill in its entirety, much less research the subject further on their own in order to come to their own logos-based conclusion. But people are naturally drawn to pro and con style arguments, partly because they are written in human terms, combining logos, pathos, and ethos, partly because arguments are much more fun to eavesdrop in on versus trudging through several pages of legislative text written in dense legalese. Arguments by passionate and informed people also help point us to the key issues we should be considering, meaning they are a highly efficient way of getting us engaged with an issue. Given this, I've turned around completely and now consider such arguments to be the most important component in the entire voter information process. We'll be going through a similar analysis on a different issue shortly, and I'd like to introduce the guest who will be helping us with that analysis, 8th grader and budding critical thinker and rock guitarist, Eli Haber. Eli, welcome to Critical Voter. Thanks. So, you want to tell people a little bit about what you learned by talking about these subjects over the last year or so? Well, I've learned a couple different things, mostly stuff that's been covered on the Critical Voter podcast and blog. One thing that really interested me was bias, different kinds of bias, as well as psychological ideas behind bias. That was definitely pretty cool. Also, rhetorical devices, those were interesting and fun to learn about. One last thing that kind of interested me a lot was argumentation. When I was younger, kind of thought an argument was just two people having a fight. And that is what a lot of people think, but it's a lot more than that. Uh, is this something you've been taught in any of your classes at school? For the most part, it's really not been taught at all in school. The one exception is a bit in English class, we have learned some more basic argumentation ideas. But other than that, we really haven't learned very much about this stuff in school. And is anything you learned from our talks or the podcast helped at school or elsewhere? I can think of two places recently where that's really helped me. One is in an essay that I wrote for history. I was posing as someone from pre-revolutionary America, and I was giving my opinion on an issue that was relevant at that time, the intolerable acts. And so I used the idea of a deliberative argument a lot to support my idea and just pointing out that I didn't care what had happened in the past and what was going to happen in the future was what was important. The other place that I can think of where I've used this stuff is outside of school with quote-unquote arguments with you guys, my parents, as well as just some other people. It's the same idea of a deliberative argument, kind of moving past matters behind us and focusing on the future, which is a lot more productive in general. Okay, uh, let's swing around to the election. Uh, this is actually the second U.S. election you followed to some degree. Any difference in how you dealt with the campaign this time versus in 2008? Uh, well, a couple different things. First of all, this year, my history and civics teacher wants me to follow the election, watch debates, and talking about it in class. So I'm definitely more engaged this year for that reason. Also, I really understand a lot of things about the election more than I did when I was in fourth grade, uh, and it interests me more. It's been fun to use things I've learned from the lessons and podcasts while I'm like watching the debates, for instance, like picking out examples of different rhetorical devices. Anyways, when I was in fourth grade, the, the debates were past my bedtime. 
Okay, so just an analysis of an argument behind one of the ballot initiatives based on some of the critical thinking tools we've learned. Uh, care to repeat this exercise with a different question? Sure. Great. So you'll be looking at question two on the Massachusetts ballot. It proposes a new law that is sometimes referred to as physician-assisted suicide, sometimes as death with dignity. And as the Massachusetts Voter Guide describes, quote, a yes vote would enact the proposed law allowing a physician licensed in Massachusetts to prescribe medication at the request of a terminally ill patient meeting certain conditions to end that person's life. A no vote would make no change in existing laws. So first, do you have any opinions, preconceptions, or bias on the subject one way or another? No. I really have not encountered this issue anywhere before, so I don't have any bias about it at all. Okay, let's start with the argument in favor of the bill. When my father was diagnosed with brain cancer, he had little time left. As his final days neared, he chose to use the death with dignity law in his home state of Oregon. The Massachusetts version, like those in other states, will allow mentally competent adults with no chance to survive their illness to take life-ending medication prescribed by a physician. My dad knew he wanted to die in the comfort of his own home, competent and aware instead of detached and sedated, on his own terms instead of those of a fatal disease that had already taken too much. My dad was already dying, but because of this law, he could say goodbye to those he loved with dignity and grace in my mother's arms. I urge you to vote yes, because while this choice isn't for everyone, everyone has a right to this choice. The first thing I noticed when I looked at that argument was that it's basically entirely pathos. It's an almost movie-like story of of how this person's father got tragically diagnosed with a terminal disease and didn't really have much time left to live, but decided to die instead of uh, drugged in a hospital, happily with his family, and conscious in his wife's arms. The other thing that jumped out at me was the last line. I urge you to vote yes, because while this choice isn't for everyone, everyone has the right to this choice. That's an example of one of the most powerful rhetorical devices, chiasmus. Oh, could I? I didn't even see that one. Okay, and here is the argument against. Question two restricts patients' choices and control by enabling suicide as a substitute for quality health care. Question two is poorly written, confusing, and lacks even the most basic safeguards. Patients would not be required to see a psychiatrist before obtaining the lethal drug. Many patients with a treatable form of depression could get a life-ending prescription rather than effective psychological care. Also, the proposal lacks any public safety oversight after the fatal drug is obtained. Question 2 does not require consultation for palliative care, a compassionate form of care that eliminates pain and maximizes quality of life for the terminally ill, and eligibility is based on a six-month life expectancy. Doctors agree these estimates are often wrong. Individuals can outlive their prognosis by months or even years. Massachusetts should improve access to quality health care for terminally ill patients, not access to suicide. Vote no on question two. Well, that definitely has more to talk about than the last one. It's mostly logos, though there's definitely hints to appeals to pathos there. It states that question two is poorly written and confusing, but I'd kind of like to say that this argument itself is also poorly written and confusing. Especially the sentence, many patients with a treatable form of depression could get a life-ending prescription rather than effective psychological care. I checked that with the law and it's pretty much totally not sound. Even if you apply the principle of charity, which would assume that uh, this is saying not that there's some form of depression that is a terminal disease, but that someone with a terminal disease could develop a form of depression. But if you check with the law, it states that 
to be able to to participate in this, you must uh, be a mentally sound adult. And if you had some form of depression, then you would not count as mentally sound. The other thing that I noticed was the strongest argument, the second to last sentence, which is individuals can outlive the prognosis by months or even years. Uh, Massachusetts should improve access to quality health care for terminally ill patients, not access to suicide, which is a strong, deliberative argument, which points out a perfectly reasonable alternative to the law in question. And of the two arguments, which one do you say is the stronger? I think both of them definitely have their problems. Neither is perfect. The first one, the pro-argument, definitely has too much pathos and no real logos to build on which can be good, but generally isn't. But it does end very strongly with the chiasmus. The con argument is definitely, I'd say, the stronger argument and the one that I would be more inclined to believe, simply because it has both logic and emotion to some extent. And it ends with a totally valid, realistic way of dealing with the problem at hand without passing the law. Well, thanks, Eli, for all the work and especially all the thought you put into this project over the last year. And thanks for joining us on this week's show. You're welcome. It's been fun. That was Eli Haber, eighth grader and critical thinker. And before we leave the subject of kids, or more specifically raising kids behind, I want to tell you about last Saturday when Eli was taking a woodworking class about an hour from our house. Hang in there with me for a minute. Relevance is just around the corner. While he was in the shop, I was busy driving around the North Shore looking for a place where I could, one, edit last week's podcast, two, start writing the script for this week's podcast, and three, find a Kentucky Fried Chicken where I could obtain an empty KFC bucket Eli could wear on his head this Halloween. Apparently this year, he'll be trick-or-treating as Buckethead, who as far as I could tell is a guitarist who wears a Kentucky Fried Chicken bucket on his head, presumably after emptying it. While stuck behind trailers carrying boats that had just been pulled out of the water in anticipation of Hurricane Sandy, I had a thought inspired by my current task, as well as by the writing of an interesting philosopher named Lee Harris. Since the advent of the scientific age, the metaphor we have increasingly used when looking at nature in our own minds is that of the machine. While the clockwork mechanism that originally formed the basis of this metaphor was eventually replaced by the engine, the factory, and finally the computer, the idea persists that we should look at the world around us as well as ourselves as a set of inputs, outputs, and processes that all have mechanical equivalents. Thus our fixation on the notion that facts and logic, logos, should be the primary driver of our thinking, since logic, especially during the computer age, comes closest to the rule-based world of the machine. But Harris proposes a different metaphor, that of child-rearing, to help us understand ourselves and our relationship to others, either as individuals or as members of society. For as he points out, raising a child is the great equalizer in life. Unless you're one of the few people rich enough and indifferent enough to outsource all their child-rearing responsibilities to someone else, at some point any parent, be they rich or poor, brilliant or dim, is going to go through the same experiences. These include the physical and emotional turmoil of sleep deprivation during your boy or girl's infancy, along with wild fixations on birth and delivery stories, which are soon replaced by feeding stories, which are soon replaced by anticipation and anxiety over milestones such as crawling, walking, and talking. And this roller coaster only continues through early and late childhood, followed by adolescence, young adulthood, and onward. During all of these phases, we modern parents arm ourselves with all the data we can get our hands on. Books, magazines, websites, social media sources, input from other parents, advice from professionals, and even, to our shock and their amusement, the experience of our own parents. 
But ultimately, no amount of book learning can prepare us for the emotional highs and lows, the absolute joys and painful anxieties we feel every day, whether from listening to our infant laugh or cry or watch an older child make a new friend or struggle with schoolwork. Now, each of these moments is a milestone with scads of data available to help us navigate treacherous waters. So in theory, we just need to access the right data and apply the right logic to it in order to make the best parenting decisions. Imagine how you'd feel if you met parents who told you this was exactly how they raised their kids by applying the same cold, hard logic you use to solve a math proof or deal with a complex engineering problem. Quite simply, you'd think such parents were, well, nuts. And you'd be right. For not only are they cutting themselves off from the emotional and human experiences associated with dealing with challenging parenting moments, they're also cutting themselves off from the information that emotion and the human desire to connect with a child can provide. Call these pathos and ethos-driven inputs what you like, wisdom and instinct being popular terms for them, but they are as critical, and in some instances more critical, than the facts and knowledge you gain from research and the logical steps you follow that leverage facts alone. So if the decisions we need to make in forming the most important activity many of us do in our lives cannot be made solely through logos, why do we get so bent out of shape when other important decisions, such as who to choose for president, also makes use of pathos and ethos? Perhaps we fear that our irrational emotions will overwhelm our reason, which is a legitimate concern. But think for a moment back to those online issue questionnaires that were mentioned on last week's podcast that allow you to specify your positions on dozens of issues, after which a computer algorithm will match you to the presidential candidate who most closely matches your views. If, after filling out such a form, you can't bring yourself to follow the computer's advice, this might be the result of emotion pushing you away from making a logical choice. For example, lifetime loyalty to a political party could overwhelm the need to pick a candidate you agree with on most specific points but it could also be the result of an entirely rational pathos or ethos response to a candidate. For example, if you don't trust the recommended candidate to prioritize the issues you agree on after the election, then this lack of trust and ethos response is a perfectly valid reason to reject voting for that candidate, even if you agree on most things. So rather than deny or be embarrassed by the fact that our emotions and need for human connection plays a role in our decision-making alongside facts and logic, we simply need to understand, accept, and control for these factors leveraging them when they provide the most benefit, such as when we need to make decisions involving love, happiness, confidence, and trust, and use less of them when they don't provide such benefit, such as decisions over what material to use to build a bridge or which insurance plan to buy. Ironically, it was my pathos and ethos-driven desire to see my children succeed in school and life that drove me to teach them, and I hope other kids and adults, logic, as well as the other critical thinking tools you've been learning about over the last few months. So even for middle and high schoolers out there listening to me talk, Keep in mind that you often get better results by thinking like a parent versus thinking like a machine. And with that, it's time to sign off on the last Critical Voter podcast you'll hear before the election. Next week, we'll return for one last episode, during which we'll take time to look at the results as we wrap up this course with some final thoughts on thinking in politics. But before we leave today, I urge you to listen to the outro music to the end, which was written by the aforementioned musical artist Buckethead and played by my aforementioned son Eli. And I urge you to join us next week on the last Critical Voter Podcast. Ooh.